All right. We're just going to jump into it today because we have a lot to cover. Who are we talking about today? Uh, We're talking about John Brown. All right. John Brown, friend of the show. Do you want to get into it first? Like, so, you know, we talk about, you know, mostly communism or socialism or anarchism. Does John Brown really fit into mm, any of those? I don't think so. (laughs) So I guess, yeah, good point. We should probably get that out at the beginning. This isn't a strictly communist story by quite a long shot, but it is a story about liberation and fighting against a state. And I think it's got some interesting stuff in there. Okay, awesome. So yeah, John Brown, most known for being an abolitionist and most definitely known for his raid on Harper's Ferry, which was a federal armory. But before all that, let's go back in time. Got to be born, as I've heard. (laughs) It's important. (laughs) It's an important step of the process. Yes. And he was born May 9th, 1800. This makes it very easy because you can just do the math on all the dates and figure out how old he was for things. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. It's good to have an even number. Oh, yeah. Birthier for that. Good for you. I always have to do uncomfortable math. Okay. Yeah. This guy, born in Connecticut, the fourth of eight children. Both his grandfathers were in the Revolutionary War. Fun fact he had a brother named Salmon. Like the fish? Like the fish. He also named one of his sons Salmon. So. I guess it was a family name. People used to, you know, just name their kids all sorts of things back <laughs> in the day. And people like to complain now, oh, modern people, how they name their kid, this and that and the other. They've been doing that all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, salmon, guys. Come on. Literal salmon. Not a name. Sorry if you listen, your name is salmon. <laughs> it's fine. It's like not a bad name. It's, <laughs> it's just fine. unorthodox. It's very strange. I mean, I do. <laughs> I like the fish. It's delicious. All right. So. Brown was raised in a strict Calvinist household. Uh, Basically, their deal was they believed that you would, you know, be judged by God at the end. And uh, so they believed in kind of a a righteousness um, or God would punish you. So, yeah. Yeah. Like Calvinism is all about the man. Here we go. Let's get into some shitty theology. Oh, yeah. Give it to me. All right. I think Calvinism (laughs) is all about like predestination in terms of like uh there's a certain elect right that's already chosen but it kind of manifests itself in the in the world based on like you can see you can tell who's the elect based on like how you know cool you know how christian they behave or something yeah i don't know does that fit with (laughs) what john brown's family was like i think so i i want to say though like i don't know just based on his kind of life choices it seems like he sees things very black and white of like this is wrong and this is not wrong and this is what i'm going to do about it you know so it, it it almost feels at times like he's running a holy war not in a strict like i'm going to convert people sense but just in he always feels like obligated by his faith to to go start shit up It's a prime motivating factor for him. I would say yes. All right, so the family moves around a bit. First, they moved to Hudson, Ohio, uh, which actually was kind of a hotbed for the abolitionist movement at the time. Its founder, David Hudson, was a friend of Owen Brown, John's father, uh, who was a fierce abolitionist who, like, favored a slave rebellion. So, yeah. Cool. 
So yeah, Owen Brown began kind of participating in Hudson's anti-slavery work, and their house actually was a safe house on the way to the Underground Railroad, or I guess on it. Yeah, not on the way. John also studied with abolitionist Eliza Wright, since there was no like high school available. There was nothing anything past like elementary school. So yeah, you can see like very early on there are a ton of abolitionists around him, and he's just like, yeah, this this is what I should be doing. So he was like, he grew up in it. Yes. He didn't. Okay. That's interesting because sometimes, you know, well, a lot, a lot of time we have like, you know, kind of class trader types, but he's, he's kind of like, mm, I think they called them in, in socialist and communist circles, like red diaper babies, <laughs> you know, I can only hope to have one of those one day. <laughs> I'm going yeah. to dye all my baby's diapers red. <laughs> <laughs> That'll, that's more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, I guess. But. Yeah. If they're like shit and blood or something you probably need to know about that so maybe not maybe just the outside (laughs) all right (laughs) (laughs) anyway so yeah he was very affected from like an early age like there's kind of an anecdote of when he was 12 years old and he was moving cattle for for a guy and the other boy working with him was a black kid and this kid got beaten with an iron shovel and Mm. brown was like hey what the fuck and was told like it's cool he's a slave and according to Brown's family, this is when he decided to like dedicate his life to the cause of abolitionism. Man, starting young. Yeah, 12 years old. <laughs> Nothing like a little childhood trauma to get you on the road oh, to revolution. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, he he kind of dicked around a lot. <laughs> All right. I would say a lot of his early life is just him like moving from profession to profession. He starts off at 16 trying to be a minister, but like his eyes got inflamed. So like he couldn't study very much. I never figured out if like that went away or if it just like he had to limit the amount he spent reading because like he still like reads and writes quite a bit. So I was like, I'm not super sure what was going on there. And then he did a lot of different things. He taught himself surveying from like just a book. He worked at a tannery, first his dad's, and then started his own tannery. He helped erect a school, (laughs) which was hosted in his home. He helped establish a post office and was the postmaster for a while. He went into the cattle and leather business, and he set up a congregational society. All right, so he dabbled, shall we say? (laughs) He was a dabbler, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I sympathize with that, for sure. I get it, I get it. (laughs) So at some point, he moves to Pennsylvania during some of this dabbling. He builds another tannery and a barn. And in that barn, he had a secret room to hide escaping slaves. It is estimated he helped uh, 2,500 enslaved people make it to Canada. Wow. All right. I was going to ask, did you know, because it'd suck if you built that, but then like no sla- no runaway slaves ever came to you to like to help. <laughs> like, I'm ready. I'm going to do it. You know, free food. <laughs> But yeah. And then it shows up. Because it's a big risk. I mean, it was illegal to do that. Yes, yes. And we're going to get some of the, the legal ramifications All too. Right. But he actually he got to he got to actually do do the heroic stuff. That's cool. Yeah, I have this under a section I call some cool guy credentials, which is <laughs> even though he's like, you know, opening businesses and stuff like that, which are things we're normally not super into, he still like did some cool shit in the meantime. Like he was consistently like anti 
uh, just anti-slavery and I would say anti-authority as well. Yeah, and we're still not like into that. But on the other hand, he's not really doing like full-on capitalist stuff. Like this is still kind of petty artisan shit, right? Like he's not opening a factory or anything. It's a tannery, like. <laughs> Yeah, like, I think it's like a family business kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, we're talking the 1820s, 1830s, like, there's just not a lot of, you know, big industrial concerns yet for him to be a part of. Uh, At one point, he was fined for declining to serve in the militia. Another point, he refused to help a family drive off uh, some indigenous people that were hunting in the area because he, like was friends with them like basically he had always tried to befriend the local indigenous people like he learned some of their languages and would invite them in for meals so like he just did not fuck with racism basically of any kind yeah that's pretty cool he and his son were expelled from their church for uh inviting a black person into their pew wow. and uh pretty much after that he was like i don't know if i'm into organized religion like i'm kind of gonna do my own thing what type of church did he go to Because, like, that was a big thing leading up to the Civil War, um, was that a lot of the denominations uh, split into northern and southern factions. Uh, Because, you know, I mean, it was a big argument. The northern factions were, like, more and more abolitionist. The southern factions started advancing, like, positive defenses of slavery, saying it was, like, a positive good and, you know, uh, justified in the Bible and things like that. And so, I mean, that that was like a long, they didn't reconcile until like the 20th century, some of those. <laughs> yeah, because they're like churches still against like interracial marriage and shit. Yeah. And I mean, you still have like the Southern I mean, Baptist still Convention, <laughs> like that's where that comes from. <laughs> Ugh, terrifying. Let's see. And let me read about this incident some more. The Congregational Church, which I, from a clue on Jeopardy, I know that is a church that like heavily emphasizes Kind of the, I think it's the autonomy of like smaller organizations, like hence why it's called congregational. Yeah, that's my understanding of it. I, mm, yeah, I don't know enough to speculate on this theological point. We'll, we'll bullshit some of it, but not all of it. <laughs> yes, you have to, <laughs> so you have to have enough to like riff off of, you know? Yes, yes, you have to have enough to give a basic answer. Yeah. All right, personal life break. You know, we gotta do these in 1820. He marries Dianthe Lusk, the daughter of his housekeeper. And uh, this guy has a million children. She gave him seven. Some of them die because, uh, you know, it's the 1820s and 30s. Things yeah. happen. And it's in America, which is still like not great as far as. Still not great, man. But back then it was even worse. So he kind of like has a stint of bad luck here. So it's going to sound pretty rough for the next like, uh, let's see, 10 or 20 years here. Oh, man. Um, Starting in 1831, his youngest son dies at age four, and then Brown himself falls ill and goes into debt. He did a lot of, like, land speculating, and it really bites him in the ass. Mm -hmm. Um, 1832, his wife dies in childbirth along with their newborn son. Yeah. And then he marries another woman, uh, the younger sister of a different housekeeper, so he has a type. (laughs) Okay, yeah. He likes relatives of housekeepers. Apparently. Um, which I don't even know what that implies. Maybe they, they have some knowledge of cleaning. No, it was, I think it was just a, a common domestic. So it's, it's like a class indicator. So that, that was, oh, yeah. you know, it's um, a working class person. That was a common job that a woman could do. So that's, you know, that, I think that's more it. 
Yeah, yeah, that probably makes more sense. They continue having a buttload of kids. They have 13 children together. So, yeah, this guy, every time I'm like, wait, he has another son? Like, (laughs) (laughs) he's so many sons. That's what you did back then, or a lot of people did back then anyway. A lot of people, yeah. He moves back to Ohio in 1836, because remember, he was in Pennsylvania for a minute, and he sets up another tannery. He became a bank director for a while and, like, had quite a bit of money, about half a million dollars in today's money. But remember the speculating didn't work out. He borrowed heavily and suffered a lot during the panic of 1837. At one point, he was even jailed because he was like refusing to leave his land when a new owner (laughs) showed up. So yeah. Oh man. So he did a little bit of, he did a little bit of uh, capitalist stuff there then getting into banking. Yeah. But I mean, it didn't work. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think the panic of 1837 is the one that Andrew Jackson basically caused with killing the second bank of the U.S. Wasn't enough to kill all the Native American people? No, he had to go after the had to go after <laughs> the bank, too. Not enough blood on his hands. It wasn't literally, you know, but yeah, basically yeah. it just opened up all these state banks to, like, loan out a whole bunch of money. And, you know, eventually that catches up with you and people find out there's nothing back in it. And then they do bank runs and then boom. Weird how these always happen. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, everyone's speculating in real estate and housing prices is going crazy because, you know, it just has nowhere to go but up until eventually that dries until out and crashes too, you know? Yeah. Uh, so Tell me that all my money's in my fucking house. <laughs> see, but if you're not trying to, everybody's actually okay with that as long as you're not trying to do something with it. Yeah, if you're not trying to sell it. Yeah, you know, if you're just yeah. sitting in your house, it's going to be there eventually. It'll, when it comes back, it'll be worth even more. But That's a good point. Only if you've borrowed money to flip them, then that those are the people who are fucked. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. All right, so my man, again, keeps dicking around. He tries to breed horses. He goes back to surveying. He tries farming. He keeps doing like a tanning business um, and eventually has to declare bankruptcy in 1842. And that is the same year that four of his children die from dysentery. It's not all. Two more die in 1846 and 1849. So like, good thing he had all those kids because a lot of them did not make it. That's the, yeah, that's one of the reasons people did that, you know, just because they made it out of infancy, there was a whole lot of diseases and shit they could die off off of, you know, you know, after that. (laughs) For sure. For sure. And yeah, good thing he had some backups. So, were you able to tell from this part of his life, was he like, I mean, he wasn't thinking about abolitionism, really? Like, he was mainly trying to get ahead in life? Um, I think he was doing both. Like, I kind of grouped this bio by more, like, themes, okay. kind of. Like, I, I will mention, like, okay, this part was in Pennsylvania and stuff like that. Um, but a lot of those cool guy credentials were sprinkled in both during his time in Pennsylvania and Ohio, like he consistently showed up for black people. Okay. But within the context of, I don't know, start up or get rich quick sort of <laughs> activities. Yeah. He was still trying to like own businesses and shit and like just get his shit together basically. And it, at one point he kind of just like gives up, which is really interesting. <laughs> uh, we're kind of getting there basically. Right, I'm so, interested to see that little, that character turn. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so he eventually finds himself in the sheep and wool business, and he kind of uses it to launch his abolitionist career properly, because he gets himself assigned as an agent for wool growers uh, in Massachusetts. 
And he's like representing the wool people from Ohio. Uh, but he's also like, while I'm here, maybe I'll talk to some abolitionist buddies. And so okay. like he starts using that to like make connections. All right. What sort of connections does he make? Some big ones. He starts attending St. John's Congregational Church, which was uh, a church founded by black abolitionists, um, mostly formal, you know, enslaved people. And he saw lectures by Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth. He and Douglass end up like being pretty good pals. Like they, they uh, correspond quite a bit. So awesome. So in 1848, he hears about this land grant program uh, started in upstate New York, and it's called Timbuktu, but spelled differently than the traditional spelling. So this was a plan from Garrett Smith, and he basically wanted to give land to black people so that they could vote. It has some like paternalistic vibes. Like he had to deem who he thought was like worthy and like... Brown himself, like he built a house there so he could like help people along, which I'm like, I get what you're doing, but it does sound like a little like, let me help you poor dumb people, you know? (laughs) So yeah, there was that sort of a sentiment was fairly common. It wasn't universal, but it was fairly common in the white abolitionist spheres at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe good intentions, just like bad messaging, not super sure. But yeah, he wanted to like help people establish farms up there, which like good luck because the soil fucking sucked. <laughs> mm, yeah. So it was like super rocky and shit. Like they were not going to get a lot out of it, but he built his house there anyway. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, that's eventually where he ends up being buried. I don't think it's such a bad scheme in given the like possibilities at the time anyway. Yeah, yeah, like I. It's a good instinct, I think. So, yeah. In 1850, the United States passes the Fugitive Slave Act. Ooh. Yeah, this is a really bad act, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, basically saying that free states have to help return any escaped enslaved people. Brown was like, hey, fuck that. I'm going to form a militia force. <laughs> And he did. They're called the League of Gileadites, which has an unfortunate connotation these days if you've read any Margaret Atwood. But, I mean, it's a biblical reference to, uh, like, the bravest Israelites who, like, would face invaders. So it's it's not a Handmaid's Tale thing. Yeah, like, that's where she got it from. Yes, exactly. On its own, it sounds kind of badass if you don't (laughs) have that context, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, the Fugitive Slave Act, not only, you know, free states had to return or whatever, like the government, but like regular people also had to like help the police round up escaped slaves, you know, even though they had elected a government that had voted to make anti-slavery laws in their state. (laughs) Insane. Yeah. Just obligating everyone to follow someone else's laws. Yeah. Insane. So yeah, this was a a militant group that he founded, and they basically wanted to ensure no one would help people recapture escaped slaves, and apparently it worked, because no fugitives were taken from Springfield, Ohio. Awesome. Yeah, there was a lot of... This was pretty widespread, and I don't know about militias so much, but, um, you know, community groups would, would put flyers out when they found out like a bounty hunter was coming to town to 
to get someone, they, they would put up flyers like, hey, we we saw this slave hunter. Like, beware if you're, you know, if you've run away, if you're hiding, like, keep your fucking head down. Like, somebody's here to get you, you know, and, and that sort of a thing. Or they would, uh, in some cases, they would bust into jails Whoa. to free someone who had been apprehended as a potential runaway slave. They would bust into jails to free them. That's so cool. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, when this was happening, it gets in the news. All the southern states are crying out. And they're like, these states, they don't have the right to do this. They, you know, the federal government needs to make them follow the law and all that. Weird how those states' rights mm-hmm. aren't as important. It is interesting. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, yeah, I mean, this is a, a federal fucking act that... Brown just said, absolutely not. We're not doing that. I don't know. I just, it, it was a complete act of like violent civil disobedience, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Like how did they, did they, I mean, did they use violence? Did they punch people in the mouth or whatever when they were trying to, you know, round, co- cooperate with the cops or how did they do it? So I'm looking at this like document that Brown wrote on, on how he thought the Gileadites should function. And this is basically like a mutual defense league. Mm, okay. Hold on to your weapons and never be persuaded to leave them, part with them, or have them far away from you. Stand by one another and your friends while a drop of blood remains, and be hanged if you must, but tell no tales out of school. Make no confession. Hell yeah. <laughs> don't, don't talk to cops. A-C-A-B. Yeah. Oh my, he's like giving tips like, oh, try a lasso to get a slave catcher. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. Okay. And a lot of this looks like it was it was also made up of, of black people as well. Mm, in his militia? Yeah. That's they're cool. like a lot of them were fugitives themselves. Yeah. Yeah. This is cool. All right. So yeah, look that up if you want to know more. It seems very cool. All right, we're gonna move to Kansas. Uh and and so is Brown. And if you're asking why Kansas, well, Kansas is bleeding. Mm, yep. Bleeding Kansas. Yes. So for our non-American listeners or people who have forgotten their high school history, uh, Bleeding Kansas is basically the lead up to the Civil War, where you basically had a, a mini state level Civil War, uh, because because there's arguments on whether or not it should be a slave state or a free state and high level shit. You had a lot of people coming over from the border of Missouri to just like fuck shit up both like electorally and violently. Yeah. <laughs> I've got some numbers for the amount of electoral fraud here, <laughs> which I think is really funny. <laughs> A congressional committee found that 1,729 votes were fraudulent compared to 1,114 votes. <laughs> oh, most of it was made up. Most of it is made up. In one county, only 20 out of 604 voters were actually residents. Wow. So what you you ended up having, like all these racist fucks come over from Missouri, pretend they're residents, and vote in elections Mm -hmm. to determine what Kansas was going to do. Yeah, and they all came over with guns to fight off the other side. And, you know, the abolitionist side sent a bunch of people over, too. They did. In, 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 in armbands and everything. One of the things I think is interesting about Bleeding Kansas is that the whole thing came about because Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois wanted to build a transcontinental railroad through that territory. And he had to, like, 
get it organized because it was called unorganized territory at the time. He had to like get it into real territories, Kansas and Nebraska, so that like they could actually put federal dollars out there. Oh, that's interesting. And to do that, he had to get the Southern senators to quit blocking him because they wanted a transcontinental railroad through the South. Mm, So to do that, he was like, well, what if we just like undo the Missouri Compromise and have a vote out there for... Uh, for slavery, you know, like what if we just make deal. it south? Yeah, and just like you know, and have this uh, big election, and that's why everyone poured in, and all the chaos happens. Oh my gosh! Okay, so we can blame the railroads for this one. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Wow, did not know that. So yeah, like you said, the the abolitionists also sent people. Another incident that I think is kind of funny is you have literal senators like beating each other with sticks. In, in Congress. Yeah. <laughs> Senator Preston Brooks just fucking caned uh, Charles Summer with a walking cane on the Senate floor. <laughs> There's a great drunk history episode about this that I really enjoyed. So, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't remember it very well, but it's a crazy story just in and of itself, man. Like, <laughs> he just goes in there, dude sitting at his desk, and he just goes to town. Like, the guy is severely injured. He's hospitalized. Oh, yeah. Charles he almost Sumner dies. Is. Yeah. <laughs> And then his uh, Preston Brooks's constituents, he starts his mailbag yes. is just flooded with new canes <laughs> that Southerners send him uh, saying, basically, you know, anybody else talks about us like that, here's a cane, you know? Yeah, one of them is engraved with hit him again. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. That's <laughs> so bad. Apparently, Sumner, like, obviously gave a very anti slavery speech which you know was enough for him to get mad but he also like talked shit about this dude's cousin or something Mm -hmm. too which is hilarious (laughs) andrew butler or somebody i think Mm, yeah he wasn't there but preston brooks was there and he was like fuck you i gotta fight you for my honor yeah (laughs) all this stuff brown was like pretty upset about uh apparently in response to someone trying to calm him down uh when he heard about the the caning uh brown said I am eternally tired of hearing the word caution. It is nothing but the word of cowardice. Which, like, yeah. Yeah. I am. (laughs) I want Brown to talk to some libs these days. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, shit was getting pretty crazy in Kansas to the point where they had two different state capitals, two different constitutions, two different legislators. And, you know, they would call each other like, oh, we're the real government. You're the bullshit one. And. I'll let you guess which sides the the presidents, Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan, favored. (laughs) Well, considering they were both uh, doe faces, is what they called them. uh, What? Northerners who basically were pro-slavery or like sympathized with the... Oh, my God. With the Southern slavery cause. They they were called doe faces. That's a great burn. And yeah, so they definitely sided with the pro-slavery side there. Of course they did. (laughs) Things escalate from there. You have something called the sacking of Lawrence, which is when some pro-slavery settlers, quote unquote settlers, they did not live there, (laughs) came into this town, destroyed a hotel, um, which like the hotel tried to kind of placate them with a really fancy meal. It was like, oh, come on in. Just like sit down. Please don't destroy us. And then they'd like (laughs) destroy the hotel anyway. Thanks for the free food. Now let me set your hotel on fire. Um, They destroyed newspaper offices of like abolitionist papers and uh, the home of the governor of the, you know, the free version of of the Kansas Territory. Shit was popping off and Brown was like, oh, I'm going to go help this pop off some more. (laughs) 
So he gets in a wagon full of guns and ammo with six of his sons and a son-in-law. I guess he didn't have enough sons. And he started gathering forces to to start fighting off these pro-slavery guys. All right. John Brown and the boys. <laughs> Going down to, to Kansas. Kansas. I mean, that's really getting involved, you know? <laughs> no, like, yeah, he does a, he does a lot of prep <laughs> you know he like makes sure his family's set up and just like all right bye <laughs> i may you know? not come back basically like I, that I sort think of setup? so yeah i mean i'm trying to remember because at one point he, he does this later too before his raid on harper's ferry where he like goes home for a sec just to see his family and then mm. goes off to do some dangerous shit so yeah i mean i think my guy was ready to die at any point yeah, well, that's, you know, supposed to be the Christian way to live is you don't know if tomorrow's guaranteed. That's a good point. All right, so they start off with a, I mean, just a straight up raid <laughs> of mm-hmm. some some pro-slavery activists. May 24th, 1856. They had heard about the sacking of Lawrence and like obviously were very upset about it. And so they go to the houses of five pro-slavery guys Take them prisoner and kill them with swords. Dude, yeah, this one's pretty badass. I mean, the sword <laughs> touch is just, you know, chef's kiss. Like, Yeah, that's classy. How did you come up with that? Is that all they had? They didn't want to waste <laughs> ammo? Like, what was it, you know? Yeah, like, did they not want to be loud about it? Or are they just like, no, this is oh, just poetically cool? Stealth kill. It Could might make sense because, like, you don't want to get caught by, like, if they're in the pro-slavery part of town... Mm-hmm. You don't want to get surrounded by everybody come running because there was gunshots. That was my guess because they did a lot of hiding during this thing. Like they would go to one guy's house and like kill him and then go to the next one. So you probably don't want to be shooting off guns to let the next guy know like, hey, there's better, guns better happening. Better hide. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I mean, when you're murdering. You, <laughs> you want to be a little secretive when you're murdering. Yeah. Pro tip, <laughs> you know. For your next murder spree. <laughs> Okay, so that's something I want to talk about. In the research for this, there's some interesting angles taken in this and mm. how people tell this story. Okay. <laughs> people get, and people at the time, obviously, were like, oh my God, this is a murder. Like, mm-hmm. they call it the Potawatomi Massacre. I've always said Potawatomi Massacre. Could be Potawatomi, like a hippopotamus. Because it sounds kind of... I don't know, sonorous that way. That's Potawatomi. nice. Potawatomi, very rhythmic. Yeah. They call it a massacre, and guys, it's five guys. I don't know if it's a massacre. The Boston Massacre was five guys. That's a good point. Well, maybe we just like the word massacre too much. It makes it sound more sensational. And in both cases, it was intentionally trying to be, trying to agitate people. It was printed by the newspapers that way to, to you know, gin up this look at the crazy abolitionists sort of thing. Just like in the Boston Massacre, it was look at these bloodthirsty redcoats. Yeah, no, and and that's definitely how a lot of the sources around this treat it. Like they they're like, oh my gosh, this was a, a crazy thing to do, and like mm-hmm. like it it's referred to as like terrorism, which I'm like, do we need to be throwing that word around? Like these guys fucking sucked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I uh, I don't know, I. I <laughs> I think I've been desensitized to the word terrorism. Oh, yeah, me to too at this point. Like, I'm like, is it even really, all right, Dave and Dan, is it even really bad? Like, <laughs> sometimes terrorism. Thoughts. Terrorism. Good? Bad? 
And, and okay, I, I think that you know a good distinction to draw is like just going after random innocent people. And here's the thing, he didn't. I want to emphasize that. At one house, one of the guys had like a 16-year-old son, and his mom was there, and she was like, "This the son isn't even part of the party yet. Like, he hasn't joined. He hasn't done anything. They yeah, don't kill he's him. He's racist as fuck, but he's not done anything. Yet. Yeah, don't worry. He's plenty racist. Yeah. <laughs> but he spares this kid. They go to a house with, like, extra guys there that they didn't expect, and they interrogate them, and then they let them go. So, like, it's not a completely, like, he doesn't kill everybody in the house, you know? He does not kill women, does not kill children, doesn't kill people who appear to not be, like, you know, guilty. Yeah, like, I don't know. That's, that to me doesn't really count. Like, if if you're just, you know, gonna bomb a building and you're like, well, regular civilians and old people and whatever die but I got my thing done. Like, that's kind of bad, I think, generally. Yeah, I think that's bad. <laughs> I you think know? we can agree. Uh, and then you, like, there's, because it's a gradient, right? Because then you have, like, oh, but then there's going to be this high-value person who's killed so many people. We got to get him. And it's like, okay, well, it's, like, bad, but it's at least got something to do with it. And then you have, like, this, where you're just killing a bunch of enemy, like, <laughs> people. Like, okay, well... We, you guys did just like burn down a hotel. Like we're essentially in a in an urban, I don't know, urban rural, but like a. You're in guerrilla war. Yeah, irregular warfare. It's just part of it. <laughs> these weren't good people, you know. Like I just want to emphasize that these were what were called border ruffians. They came in from Missouri to like start shit. Yeah, to to take part in an armed conflict. Yeah, like their main target was uh, a militant pro-slavery activist. Like, not a good guy. (laughs) Yeah. Now, when you flip it over and you say, okay, oh, the abolitionists, they're coming in, so can't somebody be sneaking around and kill five abolitionists and... No, because those are the good guys. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing, is you gotta, you do have to, like, essentially take sides and you're, you know, you're liberal, your centrist sorts will say, oh, see, you're being hypocritical, but... You're actually just having a set of values. Like, yeah, one side is like pro-slavery. That's fine to get rid of those. <laughs> yeah, when you're when you're looking at history, it's not that the good guys are like saints. It's not what we're saying, but there usually are like sides that are better than other sides, you know? Yes. I think it's really interesting. Like we'll get to it at the end too, just like some people's mm-hmm you know, readings of Brown. And, and this is often used as like an example of like, oh, he's just like bloodthirsty. I'm like, he clearly wasn't though. Like he, he would value civilian lives over like these other guys. All right, next we have the Battle of Blackjack, which is just a cool name for a battle. Uh, <laughs> that is, yeah. yeah. Was it, it was uh, they're just taking fought bets. over a disputed <laughs> hand of blackjack, yeah. like in the old Westerns. Oh, yeah, definitely. No, uh, <laughs> it was fought over uh, some kidnapped sons. One of his many sons got kidnapped. Whoa. Yeah. So Henry Clay Pate, uh, a participant in the sacking of Lawrence. I'm sorry. He named one of his sons Henry Clay? No, no, no. This is one of the bad guys. This is okay, I was going to say. So odd choice. Henry <laughs> Weird Clay was choice such a compromiser. No, this one's a pro-slavery fuck who like participated in the, in like the attack on Lawrence. So ah, okay. not a good one. This motherfucker, he goes to Brown's home in Kansas and destroys his home and has two of his sons captured. Brown was like, hey, fuck that. And he takes 29 men to go kick his ass. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He ends up capturing Pate and and his men and agrees to release them in exchange for his sons. Uh, there's like a delay in the release and I wasn't clear on like 
why, except like, I guess a higher up told like Henry Clay Pate to do that. But like, I don't know. Brown was very pissed. Like, hey, I what the fuck? I'll let you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it took like a couple months to get his sons back. Oh, wow. Asshole. I know. Next, Asawatomi. August 30th, 1856, you have 300 assholes from <laughs> Missouri, uh, pro-slavery fucks, coming into Kansas to basically march on Topeka and Lawrence. All right. They're just going to attack the place? Yeah, they're just marching on fucking cities. Uh, right. In the process, they kill one of Brown's fucking sons, another son down, Frederick. Damn. So in response, Brown and his men attack from the road and against like 300 people, you know, they are like kind of doing some guerrilla warfare shit. Uh, they take out 20 men and wound 40 more. But I mean, because the numbers are so off, they end up kind of scattering and are defeated. And the company continues on to burn Asawatomi. So they didn't really win that one. But I mean, good try. Yeah, I mean, a pretty good showing given the numbers. Uh, is that... Like at that point, are they when you say they kind of retreat? Do they scatter? Like, are they out of, you know, out of gas in the tank for the Kansas operation? Um, almost. They they make it to Lawrence to warn them and to start, you know, preparing for another attack. But the at this point, the governor steps in. I let me see which governor was it? Because remember, they have two governors. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> So yeah, they make it to Lawrence and the governor there, the the appointed one from the president, because he is like, you guys can't fucking pick a governor. I'll just do it for you, which also people did not like. <laughs> this guy orders both parties to disband and offers like clemency to both sides. And so Brown actually is like, you know what? That's okay. And he leaves to head north. Gets out of there while he can. Yes. And the reason he goes north is because my guy needs some money because he's planning his fucking raid on Harper's Ferry. All right. So at this point, he's decided it's all going to be this. Like, right. He's got a. He's kind of changing from smaller steps, smaller local steps to getting involved in the national, you know, the national tumult. And now, I mean, plan, is this is the point at which he's going to start planning the raid at Harper's Ferry? Like, that's where he's really trying to foment kind of like how you know anarcho-syndicalists will say the general strike (laughs) this is uh the slave rebellion yeah so that is definitely it like i i feel like the other stuff was much more reactionary of like oh fuck these guys are doing something let me go attack them and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and and this yeah I don't know. There's a lot of documentation and and there's a lot here about how he prepares, which makes me think like this took a minute. <laughs> and and apparently he never shared his full plan with anyone, so like we kind of have to piece together like what it was. And it's it's unclear exactly who came up with what, what at certain points because, you know, he was so secretive and he had such a big network. Interesting. That is impressive how conspiratorial it was that he didn't share you know that nobody else knew the whole plan yeah i know because like it was it seemed like it was pretty detailed so like anyway so he he goes off to start fundraising there's again a lot of detail here that you don't super need to know just know that like he goes to boston uh there's a lot of merchants and abolitionists there's and he's getting money he's getting guns and he's getting ammo (laughs) what is he telling him I mean, they're they're for the cause. They're they're all very. Most of them are pretty famous abolitionists. There is a group called the Secret Six, which is like very mysterious sounding. Um, these only two of them are like really rich in in that group. The rest of them are just like 
some guys, you know, like one mm-hmm. of them was like a doctor. And back then doctors weren't that rich. Um, and, and they were all just like abolitionists, but they wanted to keep their identities hidden because they're like, eh, let's let's not show exactly that we're, you know, funding a federal raid. <laughs> so, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. But they so they knew they were funding a federal raid, though. I don't. It's unclear how much these guys knew. OK. And, and that was, I think, kind of the point of like he I don't think wanted them I think the Secret Six did not want to be implicated, so they just like gave him. I think they just gave him money. Didn't ask questions. If I had to guess, but they do know that they're giving it to John Brown, the sword guy from Kansas. <laughs> yeah, if anything, they know that. Like okay. it's unclear. I mean, I didn't do a ton of like looking into it because I I was just like, he got money. Let's move on to the cool fighting stuff. Uh-huh. But <laughs> if you want to, there's lots of oh, there's lots of stories about him like traveling and and talking to I guess rich people and getting money. That's good. That's Praxis. Yeah, man. <laughs> He's starting his network. Let's put those ill-gotten gains to good use. Yeah. He uh, also continued networking in the personal sense of um, he attended an anti-slavery mock legislature. He gave speeches. He kept up his friendship with Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass knew about this mission and thought it was just like suicidal and was like, you should not be doing this, bro. Like, this is a bad idea, basically. I guess he turns out right. I mean, he's right about the fact that it's a suicide mission, but I still think it's very cool. It's very <laughs> so. cool. It also does. I don't think it has to fail, but it does fail. <laughs> yes, yes. And we'll talk about some of the reasons why. So uh, this is the part where, like, this this becomes such a bigger scheme because Brown goes to Canada and writes a provisional constitution for a new state in Appalachia. Whoa, okay. He's like... I'm not just doing a slave revolt. I'm starting a new fucking place. <laughs> wow. So he writes the constitution for it in Canada? Yeah, I guess that's like a safer place to meet because you have a lot of like fugitive slaves there, or, you know, formerly enslaved people there. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of abolitionists there. So he's like, we're going to hang out here to write, write our constitution. He was very inspired by previous slave results, like the one on La Amistad, as well as the revolts that were happening in the Caribbean, like Haiti, Jamaica, and Suriname. He was really interested in their use of guerrilla warfare and also the idea of establishing their own communities for runaway slaves. So, like, that was his idea was basically like, this is going to be like a black run state. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. He he names Elder Monroe, who was a black minister, as the acting president. I mean, I like this detail. Has a unicameral legislator, all people chosen via popular vote, no Senate. Nice. <laughs> it's just regular ass democracy. Abolish the Senate. Please, please. Not enough, the, but I mean. It's the literal least you could do at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bottom of the barrel. There is also a Declaration of Liberty. And the full title is the Declaration of Liberty by the Representatives of the Slave Population of the United States of America. So, like, really aiming big here. Dude, yeah. And this is to kind of tie it into our normal topic. This is some this was kind of the line of uh, various American communist parties and like the Moscow International line back in like the 30s and, and early 20th century and stuff was. Uh, self-determination for oppressed groups within the United States, like the black population. They wanted the liberation of the black belt into its own country. So it's just what it reminds me of, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like this is, and and I don't know, like (laughs) this is going to be embarrassing. I'll just go ahead and say it. 
when I first heard about John Brown, I did assume he was black. <laughs> oh, okay. He's a yeah. white guy, but like, he's actually like doing the fucking work, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And he's like giving power to black people when he can. I don't know. I, I think it's very impressive how like, he's willing to die for this cause or whatever, but he's not going to make himself president of this. He's like, I'll lead your troops because that's what I'm good at. Like he names himself commander in chief, but not like president commander in chief. Like he separates those roles. Like he's like military guy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, they like establish all, all these different roles. Like I think they name like a vice president, a secretary of war, secretary of peace, like all kinds of shit. They're like, here's our new government. The weird thing is this was never really widely distributed. It sounds like the people who were like working on it knew the plan, like in like knew their part of the plan, but he doesn't like go off talking about this because he's, he doesn't want people to find out about, you know, the big raid. Yeah. He's <laughs> so, sort of planning yeah. a rebellion against the government. Yeah. You can't really go chatting about that. <laughs> yeah. And even though they were very careful, they still had a security leak issue a former military consultant for Brown, Hugh Forbes, threatened to expose his plan to the Senate. Ooh. Yeah. So Brown's benefactors, you know, the Secret Six, were like, uh, we can't have our money tied to a federal raid. Please, like, shut this down. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Brown actually flees to Kansas for six months. He's like, see, I'm just going back to Kansas. No big deal. (laughs) But of course, he doesn't like just go chill. He does do some more raids in Missouri. um, And he helps lead a group of uh, liberated slaves escape to Canada. You know, just some downtime fun. Yeah. Casual (laughs) lawbreaking. Yeah. Um, He ends up getting uh, a bounty on his head from the governor, equivalent to $105,000 today for Brown's capture. In D&D, that's how you know you're making a name for yourself. So I imagine it's the same if you're doing <laughs> anti-slavery activism. I want to point out again here that like Brown was not particularly bloodthirsty. Apparently, at one point, one of his companions suggested, like, whoa, we should just start like blowing up churches in the South. And he was like, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So not a terrorist, again. I don't know. He's doing massacres. Whatever. <laughs> they were jerks. Brown starts wrapping up and making final prep for the raid. He goes and visits his family one more time. He sets up in Maryland, uh, which is very close to Virginia, obviously. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And there he's joined by Harriet Tubman. He called her General Tubman, which I think is cool. Oh, badass. Yeah. She actually helped with this raid. She helped him recruit former slaves from Canada and gather resources in nearby border states. She didn't want to participate much more than that because she was like, I, if this goes south, I still have to make sure that the Underground Railroad is like working. So mm. like she couldn't commit much more than that. Okay. All right. For some reason, I thought that she had gotten like ill or something and was gonna, but then couldn't. But that's that makes more sense, I guess. That's what I had read. Maybe maybe there's another source on, on that. No, either, either way works. I don't know. <laughs> Which works. I, one of them's right, I'm sure. One, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure she had a reason. The plan was to capture an armory in Harper's Ferry, which is like a federal building where they stored all the guns, basically. And they wanted to arm the local slaves in the town and also work their way south, freeing and arming slaves from plantations as they go by. They plan to fight only in self-defense. So like, if you come at me, I'll shoot you. But if you just let me do this, I won't. <laughs> yeah. 
and he hoped this would basically spread a wave of rebellions, um, hoping for a mass movement and to basically topple the slave economy from the inside out. Okay, so kind of a, you know, a flavor of propaganda of the deed. I think so. I, I think showing like, oh, if we take a federal armory and then we start arming people, like, you know, that will inspire more people to follow. So the good news is he had a lot of guns. <laughs> All that fundraising paid off. He has 200 rifles, 950 pikes, and the armory that they were planning to capture had 10,000 rifles. So he like, if they could get in there, they were good on guns. Well, yeah, yeah, they'll be good on guns. Um, how many people do they have? That's the bad news because he was hoping to pull this off. He wanted a brigade of 4,500 men. To start with? That's what he wanted. Okay. He had 21. Yeah, not a lot, but that's <laughs> a, a short. It's a starting point. <laughs> once you get your first, once you liberate your first plantation, you get a whole lot more people. That's the idea, I guess. It was uh, made up of 16 white men, three free black men, one freed slave, and one fugitive slave. One of the slaves, I wasn't clear on whether or not it was like the totally freed one or the fugitive. I think the fugitive, uh, because he was on a mission to free his wife because she thought she was going to be sold off because like her owner had uh, money troubles. And it's really sad. Like this guy ends up dying and like they find like the, this note from his wife in his pocket. Oh. I know. October 16th, 1859. Also, again, this guy's 59 years old. <laughs> and he's out there. At a time when 59 was not the new 39, you know? No, like, that was old as fuck back then. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they attack the armory. They meet no resistance at first. The, there was, like, a single guy guarding it, and he was just like, yeah, fuck no, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> they cut the telegraph wires, and they round up hostages from nearby farms, including one Colonel Washington, the great-grandnephew of George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They take this guy's slaves. They also <laughs> steal some shit from him. They take a sword that was presented to Washington by Frederick the Great and two pistols from uh, Lafayette. Nice. They just rob him? <laughs> they just rob him. They also take a silver watch. He was a slave owner then? He was a slave owner. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> During Brown's interrogation later, they ask him, "You did you rob this guy? And he says, we intended freely to appropriate the property of slaveholders to carry out our object with no design to enrich ourselves with any plunder whatsoever. <laughs> so like, yes, we did rob him. It wasn't for me. I just, whatever. He doesn't deserve to have it. It wasn't like to get rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in other times he would have said property is theft. Exactly, exactly. Next, we get to the story of Hayward Shepherd. So while they're, they're working on their, their takeover, they, they end up being confronted by a black man working as a baggage handler at the train station. Uh, this was a free black man, and he gets killed. And this is something that the South really harps on of the first death was a black guy. Of course they do. It gets so much worse. The United Daughters of the Confederacy end up erecting a monument to this guy in 1931, and it was all just fucking bullshit, faithful slave narrative mm -hmm. nonsense. Yeah. 
they suck. It was so gross. Like I, I included the quote from the plaque in the notes if you want to read it. It's disgusting. It's just like, oh wow, what a good character. Wow, they were right. so happy being slaves. Yep. I mean, it sucks that the guy died, but it's not like he was, you know, saying, I really hope that we keep slavery. I'm going to fight to the death, you know, right? Like, how did he die? He thought they were robbers. Like, he had no idea they were, like, on an anti-slavery crusade. He just Mm. was like, hey, don't rob this train station, please. Yeah. And then one of the troops was just like, blam. Oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. So a doctor comes out to see, like, hey, I just heard a gunshot. (laughs) And... Brown lets him go, which, again, not bloodthirsty, but also maybe not smart, because uh, (laughs) the guy just goes to, like, ring the church bell to sound the alarm and heads off for a nearby town to get help. Well, uh, probably should have shot that guy. Or tied him up, knocked him out, tied him up. Something, (sighs) something. I I always make this joke when we play D&D is kill your prisoners. (laughs) 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 No, I made that joke on the pod. It was for... Who was it? Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer, kill your prisoners. <laughs> Sometimes you might have to. I don't know. Not my favorite activity. It's a hard decision to make, but but at least debility. You know, tie him up. You said it was a doctor. Yeah, it was just a like doctor. tie him up. Put him in his house. Yeah, some Scooby Doo fucking rope around him. That's fine. Yeah. All right. Brown continues to make some bad decisions because things really start to break bad when a train comes into town. This is at like 1.15 in the morning. They had been warned about trouble and stopped a little bit outside of town. Brown gets on the train, not hiding his identity at all. Remember, this guy has been doing raids all the fuck around the country and is like pretty famous for it. So he just like chats with the passengers. The train is delayed and he he gives them blankets. He's like, oh, you guys are cold in here. Let me just... (laughs) hook you up he lets them stay in the hotel for the night like oh you're delayed let me accommodate you oh wow and then he lets the fucking train go what do you mean he just sends them on like yeah keep going he at dawn he lets them go and of course the train immediately goes to send a fucking telegram in the next town in baltimore and apparently whoever received the telegram thought that the report was exaggerated. Like, this cannot be real. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> uh, but then another train station, like, in Virginia confirms it. So he's like, oh, shit, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so they then send telegrams to the military, the governor of Virginia, the secretary of war, and President Buchanan. See, it's a pretty good tactic once you've succeeded. Like, once you have carved out your little area, be nice, you know? Mm-hmm, and- mm-hmm. Say, look at us. Like, you thought we were going to be bloodthirsty, you know, crazy people or whatever, but we're actually, like, a really respectable place. But don't let them go. <laughs> well, I mean, like, yeah, don't let, not right then. Uh, let them go and don't take prisoners and be good once you have your state. But, like, at that time, probably too soon, right? Yeah, I mean, just keep them in the fucking hotel. Like, why do you have to let the train go? You know they're just going to go rat you out. Yeah, or just blow up the tracks. Yeah, yeah. So Brown does consider this his one mistake. I got to agree with that. Yeah, that that was not a good one. Pretty big one. Pretty big one to have. But they also don't, uh, like, they don't, they have trouble getting the word out to the local slave population, right? Yeah, so, I mean, the big issue with this plan is the, the numbers did not materialize for him, both in his initial recruits, um, they just were not enough, and then, yeah, whenever they start freeing people like they don't get enough numbers there either yeah was it just like they couldn't 
get out to them or they had dispersed in some other way or it was mostly yeah that they they couldn't really end up leaving uh harper's ferry is situated on a very narrow peninsula so they get pretty quickly trapped in there once um offenses start showing up Mm -hmm. they just like are stuck with with whatever hostages they have (laughs) yeah they had a very narrow window of of time to go out as far as they can get as many slaves as they can and instead they were passing out blankets i mean yeah maybe you shouldn't have used your five hours on on train time (laughs) like train chats so that was a pretty crucial mistake. I yeah. would say that's just as bad as the railroad part because, like, yeah, getting everyone there to close you off is bad also, but you you have 21 guys. <laughs> you shouldn't have gone, first off. If you only had 21 guys and you wanted 4,000, you should not have gone. Well, I like it, so. I mean, it's cool. <laughs> go do it, but, like, your priority number one mission has to be. Get more guys. Get people, yeah, like. You got to do that. Yeah. I mean, they got some like from from fucking Washington's farm and like mm-hmm. the, a couple of other areas. But like that was about it. Like they, I don't think they got a ton. Yeah. They had to they had to put all their efforts, I think, to that to get it to work. I think it, yeah. po- it was possible. But I guess I haven't looked at like a map to say, OK, well, how many literal people even were there for them to get on board, you know, in that in a feasible area? Yeah. Like how far apart were these farms? and shit? Right. Yeah. Yeah, could you have done any of that beforehand? You know, done small sneaky attacks on the farms so they and make sure they don't fucking tell anybody, <laughs> and then have those people added to your initial force. Like that would be cool. Hmm. Yeah, that's more like guerrilla action of like, I don't know, kind of National Liberation Front stuff from Vietnam and stuff. I have kind of secret cadres going through, mm-hmm. you know, and recruiting and and then. When the day comes, bam, you thought you had a secure plantation, but actually all your all your workforce is <laughs> actually turned against you now. And they knew it was coming and it's called coordinated. That'd be cool. Yeah. See, I'd be like, I'd be into that. They end up getting some more hostages. People come in for work at the armory. And I'm like, wait, didn't that doctor set off alarm bells? So like, I don't know if they just didn't hear it or they're like, church is early today. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. fucking know. So he takes these employees as hostages in in the engine house of the armory. There are different reports on how many exactly there were, somewhere between 60, 70, 80, something like that. It's very hard to tell because some people, like, thought the hostages were with Brown, so, like, it was unclear. (laughs) Since Brown had taken the armory, the, the citizens of the town didn't have any guns to fight back. But by this point, it was the next morning, uh, militias from the neighboring towns began to arrive, Apparently, a lot of them were just drunk. (laughs) (laughs) They were just like a mob of racist assholes who were like bad at shooting. So like they didn't really, they weren't very effective for a while. I'm sure they probably had, I mean, this was America (laughs) in the 1850s. Like there were townsfolk with guns and stuff. And yeah, everyone was drunk. But I mean, (laughs) some of the, you know, they had enough to like surround them in the first place, right? Like. The, the the local militia. Yeah, you might have your own personal shotgun, but that was not going to, like, breach a fucking, you know, yeah. engine house. Like, your big guns were in the armory. Yeah, they have enough to draw up a position, but they don't really have enough to do anything with it. So, yeah, he's basically trapped in there. Um, they lost control of the bridges outside of town that, like, they had been, like, patrolling. 
Um, so they all fall back to like the main fire engine house in the armory. They bar the doors and the windows and just like leave little holes for them to poke their guns out of. They they start shooting. Um, you've got four townspeople killed, including the mayor. He was also the former sheriff of the county, so he probably sucked. So that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and Brown sends out his son, Watson. Son number, whoever, I don't even know. Mm-hmm. And another man to surrender. Uh, these guys are just shot. like Out of hand? They were just blam? Yeah, they, they shoot Watson, and the other man is captured. Watson is, like, gravely wounded and begs for death, and his dad is like, suck it up, dude. Like... <laughs> Which is pretty shitty. One of another son, Oliver Brown, also dies. Uh, another son escapes. I think he was actually left behind in Maryland guarding their their base. He left like three guys behind to guard. So yeah, this this next section is a little gross. So content warning for just like wanton violence. I'm not going to get too much into the details here, but like, if you want an idea of the kinds of guys they were fighting, they at one point find one of their guys posted on the bridge one of brown's men william thompson he is shot and taken to the hotel and then the mob drags him out and throws him into the river because the hotel owner said he didn't want his carpet ruined by his like dead body yeah he Mm. said take that guy out of here well it's it is a dead body i mean i guess (laughs) i'm not to not to side with hotel owners because they suck I mean, they're a business. It's not, like, uniquely bad. It's just a hotel. Yeah, yeah. In general, just the bodies of these men were treated very badly. People were cutting off body parts to take as souvenirs. Afterwards, Watson's body was turned into an anatomical specimen, basically for the explicit purpose of, like, saying a big fuck you to abolitionists. Three other bodies were also used by medical students. Like, this is just what they did. Other bodies were dumped in an unmarked pit because no cemeteries around there would take them. Nice. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty mean. I mean, I'm not a big. I don't care. Know, I want to be like person. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just want to be like a tree or something. I want to yeah. be a tree, but I'm worried I'm going to get chopped down. Oh well, you won't care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're right. You're you're definitely right. I here's my thing. Worry about being chopped down, and also like, I'm worried about like my poor. You know, as Helmut said, ancestors, opposite, descendants. They're going to be like, we can't move because we got fucking grandma tree over here. <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> yeah, that's so, true. You can get planted in a national or state park or something. Now that's a good scheme. You're like protected. For now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. Oh, they can launch you into space, can't they? I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's I a lot know. of money. Yeah. I, I, it does suck though for their relatives and stuff who you know mm-hmm. that sucks. Now you they, gotta take they care, care of a about tree. that. No, not the tree thing. I mean, if oh. they if they did the anatomical <laughs> sorry, thing, sorry. you yes. know, if they if they disrespect your your body, yeah, your fallen relative's body, and then you're like, ah, oh. it's just like it's just rude. It's gross. It's rude. Just don't. The next day, you get the big guns. President Buchanan sends in the Marines. To deal with these, again, not very many guys. Start with 22 men. Uh, he sends in 105 Marines, plus a bugler, which I think is funny, uh, <laughs> armed with seven howitzers. Well, they are holed up in a building. They are. And they do have a lot of guns. This is pretty normal. I don't know. It's not the it military's, is. like, MO to be like, oh, there are six guys out there. We're going to send seven six guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know. 
just an extra guy. A bugler. Yeah, tr- Don't forget the bugler. They try to overwhelm. That's it's fairly standard. <laughs> yeah. And he sends one Robert E. Lee to lead the forces. Boo. Yeah, I guess sucks. Tuesday, 6.30 a.m., Lee starts his attack. He apparently offers this job to the local militias, but they decline. And I'm like, are they just too drunk? Or are they just like, nah, you should do it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just funny mm-hmm. to me. I mean, he's he was the top general. He's and, a professional. Yeah. I can leave it to him. <laughs> I mean, I guess he's only a colonel at the time, but he's still like West Point. He, he like, mm-hmm. you know, knows what he's fucking doing. And these are the Marines. What does a fucking militia know about commanding, you know, U.S. troops? <laughs> Do you want to try this? No, no, go ahead, please. Yeah. Like you said, they're also still hung over or drunk. (laughs) All right. So Lee sends in a guy to offer surrender and Brown's like, no, (laughs) we're not doing that. And so the man who was there, you know, to offer the surrender immediately signals for people to attack. So they try to break through with sledgehammers uh, and then they end up making a makeshift battering ram out of a ladder, which I'm like, I would think the sledgehammer would be stronger but okay. Yeah, it sounds like it. The ladder works, so they make it through. Two of Brown's men are killed and the rest are taken prisoner. The hostages are freed. This all goes down in like three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's it's over very quickly. It falls apart. Mm-hmm. Brown started this attack with 22 men. Ten were killed and, you know, seven of them are captured and hanged. Including? Including Brown, yes. Mm-hmm. On the other side, uh, they killed five people and injured nine. So let me, let me guess. This was a, a gruesome, barbaric attack by crazed abolitionists. <laughs> yeah, they killed five whole people. So yeah, now we get into the aftermath of it, which is pretty interesting. So they take everyone to like a nearby office, and Brown gives interviews all day, despite like having had no food or sleep in two days and having like major injuries. He got wounded too. Yeah, he got wounded. He gets like a, a big head wound and I think a shoulder wound and somewhere like in his kidneys too. He, he some guy like hits him with a sword a few times. Damn. So he's questioned by all kinds of like famous or you know big shots. So you got the Virginia governor and his attorney. The U.S. attorney from D.C., you have congressmen from Virginia and Ohio. Um, So you have all these guys. And what's really interesting about this set of interviews is that everyone is, like, reluctantly impressed by this guy. (laughs) They're like, man, I hate what this fucking guy did. But they call him things like courteous, brave, resolute, quote, the farthest possible remove from the ordinary ruffian, fanatic, or madman. Wow. They're like, this guy isn't crazy. <laughs> yeah. And they went in expecting it, right? They went in like, oh, this this guy's got to have blood in his eyes all the time, you know? I think so. Like, it, it's what's weird is they, like, don't think that he planned the attack himself. They're like, I don't think he thought this through or, like, maybe someone else hired him to do this or, like, he was part of a larger operation. Of course, Brown ain't talking to fucking cops. He did not tell them. He did not reveal anybody. So he didn't give him any of, like, the Secret Six, any sort of funding people, anyone else that was involved. Like, they ask him all kinds of questions. There was actually a newspaper interview from the time. Like, they just, like, let reporters in here. And they published, like, pretty much verbatim the interview. Well, at least as far as I know. I, I don't know for sure. I guess they could have changed shit. But it's really interesting. Like, he just is 
like very calm in his answers and he's just like i'm not gonna answer that or like no i'm not gonna like at one point they ask him about like some some name of like you know is so and so involved and he goes well i can't speak for other people and i'm not going to answer that so i'll I'll tell you what i did (laughs) yeah (laughs) he's very calm cool and collected for after what he's been through yeah yeah i mean he basically is just like i had to do this and like tells them you know you're gonna have to deal with this more like this ain't gonna be the last of this conflict yeah and it's an interesting place to be i guess because he kind of has to know how this is you know what's gonna happen to him at that point you know his state of mind in the the time period after being captured is very interesting we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in a sec but uh and then they were transferred to the jail and, and things really heat up. Uh, they basically put up martial law in, in Charlestown, not to be confused with Charleston or Charlestown. It's, it's two separate words. <laughs> and, and they just like have a heavy military presence here. They were really worried about people trying to uh, break John out. Um, and they were worried about any sort of retaliation. So yeah, very heavily monitored. Yeah, Charlestown is now in West Virginia. At the time, oh. though, that is Virginia because there was no West Virginia before the Civil War. Oh, yeah, doesn't, doesn't West Virginia exist because they're like, yeah, we're not going to secede? <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. They had Virginia had already seceded and joined mm-hmm. the Confederacy. And, and it's during the Civil War that that Western region was like, hey, fuck this. We're going to break away and <laughs> re- like basically rejoin you know, yeah. the Union. Good job, West Virginia. Yeah. All right, next we get to the trial, which, like, mixed bag of issues here. So, It's like a show trial, isn't it? It is in a lot of ways, yes. The attack was on federal property, but they did not want to try him federally because they're like, uh, we want to win, so we're going to try him in Virginia. Their argument was like, well, murder and slave insurrection is not a federal crime, so we're going to, like, do it here. But they really just, like, didn't want to attract any more abolitionist protesters from around the country to, like, come see a trial in D.C. It was heavily reported on as, like, one of the first, like, nationally covered trials. Um, You had people from New York and Baltimore and, like, all around coming in. Apparently, a a pro-slavery paper came in in disguise, like a reporter from there. (laughs) Uh, A guy recognized him. He's like, hey, please don't like wrap me out. And he's like, okay. Uh, And he would like use this guy to smuggle out like reports by like wrapping them around his legs and like tying them underneath (laughs) his pant legs. Wow. Yeah, some spy shit. Yeah. They really like rushed this whole trial and sentencing process because they're like we just need to get this guy killed basically he's tried by a grand jury for four counts of murder inciting a slave insurrection and treason against the commonwealth of virginia i did not realize treason was per state which okay i mean i know there's federal treason but apparently you can do it per state too i guess so you can you know if someone tries to rebel against the state government wouldn't that count? i guess Someone's like, fuck it, I'm going to set up, you know, the, <laughs> no this county's breaking away. and we, yeah, like, I'm starting we, new Texas. It makes sense. I think that, I that could technically be a thing. It just seems just very strange. And, and I was curious because, uh, spoiler, Brown ends up being the first person executed for treason. I looked it up, and a lot of the treason that's in, like, the historical record is on a state level. <laughs> 
So I just think that's interesting. I mean, maybe it's just like a product of the times. I mean, so what? The state is there to defend the interests of capital, to persecute their class enemies. So treason is just, you know, another way to increase the criminal penalties for whatever they did that you don't like, you know, whatever they did to threaten your position. You're like, oh, yeah, that's also treason. We're going to execute you, you know? Yeah, I guess I'm just surprised that it comes in, like, at a state, as in, like, individual states level, yeah. you know? I'm just like, why are we... Okay, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, some shit happens. First off, Brown was assigned two pro-slavery lawyers for his defense, and he was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. Can we please <laughs> delay so my lawyer can get here? And they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> he also was still healing from his injuries and um, wanted to delay for that reason. And they said, absolutely not. They had a doctor come in and say, oh, yeah, he's totally fine. Even though he still had a lingering head wound. He'll be all right. He also like couldn't hear very well because of the head wound. And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. <laughs> he's totally <laughs> this is good not to a go. real trial anyway. So yeah, you're good. You don't really need to hear anything. <laughs> so his lawyers eventually make it uh, a day later. The prosecuting attorney in Virginia for that county was apparently like kind of drunk and incompetent. So uh, the (laughs) governor appoints his own personal attorney, who, of course, was like very pro-slavery. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure the other guy was, too. I'm sure. He just also like was a bad lawyer. (laughs) Yeah. Brown refuses uh, to take an insanity defense, you know, kind of plea thing. He's he's his family and friends are like, yeah, maybe you should consider that. His lawyer tries to get him to do it. But he's like, uh, nope, not going to do it. His lawyer does try some interesting moves to try to reduce the charges. He says that, you know, because it happened on federal property, again, like, why are we doing this for Virginia? Um, You also can't get him for anything he did in Maryland because that's not Virginia. Also, Brown isn't even a a resident of the state. So, like, he couldn't commit treason, (laughs) (laughs) which I think these are interesting moves, but none of them work. They already know what they want to do. I mean, they really do. And to top it off, under Virginia law, um, defendants are not allowed to testify under the assumption that they will not tell the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not a bad assumption. Like, no one's going to go up there and be like, yeah, I totally did it. Yeah, I sort (laughs) of shot that guy. You know, like. And then if they are innocent, they'll tell you the truth. Sure. But you're just always going to get the same story as I didn't do it. It's like the two angels. Yeah. One always tells the truth. <laughs> one lives in Virginia. <laughs> Which one is lying? So, yeah. I mean, that law is no longer on the books. But, yeah. Pretty funny. So, yeah. October 31st, the jury deliberates for a whopping 45 minutes. They find Brown guilty on all charges. And uh, two days later, Brown is allowed to speak at his sentencing. Um, it's a pretty short speech, so feel free to, to read it. Uh, but I pull out a couple of quotes that I enjoyed. Had I so interfered on behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or on behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right. Every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. Yes. My man understands class division. Mm Mm-hmm. He gets it. He understands what they're really punishing him for is challenging the state and its its regime. 
Yeah. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit. So let it be done. Nice. Like how you said, he was kind of calm about everything. I mean, he knows where the road's going. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like he's very aware of what's going on. And, and that's why I don't buy the, like, he was crazy. I'm like, no, nah, this guy knew what's up. He has some time on his hands because under Virginia law, you have to wait one month between sentencing and execution. Sounds like a terrible month to be in. I guess that's like to make it worse, you know? Like You'd think so, right? You have to think about about being about to die sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. That extra punishment. I, I have to assume. Maybe it's like, I don't know to give time like oh i found some evidence i don't know <laughs> or to get your affairs in order like oh you yeah make a funeral a arrangement or yeah yeah say goodbye to your loved ones yeah i mean this has a couple of effects one it extends the reporting like the news cycle mm. of it this is really sensationalized in the meantime the rest of his men are tried um, and found guilty brown's lawyers and some other like reporters and such were basically run out of town the mayor gives a proclamation telling all strangers to leave the town or they'll be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of good they left because there was also like a lynch mob coming for them. So like, yeah, it was probably good to just go ahead and leave. Uh, the tourism board really wasn't a fan of that proclamation. <laughs> yeah. Come on, guys. The hotels are just like, seriously, all strangers. Come on. <laughs> Someone just has like a relative visiting. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, no, Get I can vouch for him. I know who this is. Yeah. They were also, again, really worried about a rescue attempt. There were a few, like, failed ideas on how to do that. There was one plot to kidnap the governor and hold him hostage in exchange for Brown. Brown, like, heavily discouraged any of these attempts. He's like, no, nah, I'm good. Like, I'm ready to die. It's cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Brown passed the time by writing letters. He wrote over like a hundred letters from prison. He gave interviews to reporters. He was just like, well, I'm, you know, I'm about to die. Let me go ahead and like spread the word about why I'm doing this. He was weirdly cheerful. In fact, like this is the only evidence I see of like, okay, this is a little like not crazy, but it's oh, maybe it's Zen. Maybe he just like had made his fucking peace. You know, maybe it's not crazy. And he knows where he's going. You know, he knows that yeah. he's fulfilling his mission. He knows that he's living righteously. He's acted and not just believed. I mean, he's he's kind of close. You know, it's like you, uh, the, the the feeling you get when you've read like a an eight series, <laughs> an eight book series, and and you're on like the near the end of the book, and you're just like, oh, here it comes, you know. And it's it's like kind of it's conclusive and good, and that's where he's at. It's satisfactory, yeah, yeah, closure. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's also, he's getting a ton of letters of support and, you know, yeah, he, I think he just feels like he's dying for the cause and it's like, that's fine. It's a good cause, you know? The one thing I think that kind of haunted him a bit was his wife. He didn't want her to visit because he's like, that's just going to like upset both of us a lot. Um, and also she'll be like hounded by reporters. Uh, so he tried to tell her not to come. She came anyway, which like, I get it. They have their last meal together in the home of his jailer, who Brown basically saw as a friend at that point. Like, they they seemed, like, kind of weirdly close. In fact, he gives his last words to his jailer. He writes it down on a scrap of paper. He writes, uh, Charlestown, Virginia, 2nd December, 1859. 
I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. I had, as I now think, vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed, it might be done. Well, uh, <laughs> he was right. He's not wrong. Yeah. Not wrong at all. Brown is hanged on December 2nd, 1859 at 11.15 a.m. I want to reiterate that this man, you know, someone who tried to free slaves, was the first person to be executed for treason in the United States. That's a fitting first treason execution. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for a country founded on slavery, like, it fucking tracks. Yeah. For this slave country, as he called it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. exactly what they do. And, And at that point, even, it's like, caricaturishly pro-slavery like the government and everything is completely captured by pro-slavery forces before then it was always pro-slavery but it was like at least they had qualms about it you know (laughs) (laughs) the execution itself is pretty rough there are like a ton of spectators including the press you have a lot of pro-slavery fucks just there to like watch the show They ask the carpenter who made his coffin if they could have a piece of the board. The rope was, like, specifically made out of, like, Virginia cotton and afterwards was displayed in the fucking sheriff's office. (laughs) The day before the execution, there was a military parade complete with music. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was a triumph for the South, you know. This This is what the abolitionist road leads to, and this is how we will stop it. Yeah, it was a fucking party. You had uh, some famous folks in attendance, including Robert E. Lee, of course. Stonewall Jackson, he did not have the cool nickname yet. Just just regular Jackson. Just Thomas. <laughs> Is that his name? I forgot it already. Yeah, it was Thomas Jackson. Okay. John Wilkes Booth showed up. And Edmund Ruffin, who is credited with firing the first shot of the Civil War. Edmund, man. <laughs> Way to go. Really started some shit, didn't ya? (laughs) (laughs) He was just following orders, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. But he was on the wrong side, so. I mean, he still sucked. Don't get me wrong. In fact, in order to gain entrance, uh, some people, like, put on a borrowed militia uniform so they could, like, go watch this hanging. That's an awkward ask. (laughs) Hey, man, I can't get in. Do you have a spare ticket? I mean, uniform. (laughs) So I can go watch a hanging. Uh, you know, that used to be public entertainment, I it guess. It really did, yeah. That That is kind of the, the standard, but... People were more gruesome. <laughs> very gross. There is like a very famous legend, and it's captured in a lot of paintings and engravings of stuff, of uh, Brown kissing a black baby on his way to the gallows. This is widely refuted. Uh, he was basically surrounded by soldiers the entire time. Um, they were really worried about him giving another speech, so uh, the crowd was kept pretty far away from the actual gallows. I always liked that painting, though. It was cool. It's a cool painting. Don't get me. There's a lot of cool paintings of this guy. Like, first off, his beard is crazy. He grew the beard specifically when he started like doing some direct action. He was like, "Well, now I need a disguise." So, <laughs> yeah. and it looks great. Great choice. So yeah, they they basically had to like do some martial law to keep out any more spectators, um, and they also had a shotgun pointed at Brown in case of a last minute rescue attempt. Um, they had one set up like at the gallows. Damn. And now we get kind of to the the immediate reaction and impact. As we talked about with the story of Hayward Shepard, the South took this and ran. Uh, with the idea of the content slave. They said, well, nobody wanted to join, so clearly they love being slaves. 
They super exaggerated it, though, and said that, like, no black people helped Brown. This is not true, obviously. He had black people with him going in. And during the raid, he had about 20 to 30 people, like, you know, freed slaves that he just liberated help him. The numbers are kind of shaky because when they were captured, obviously they weren't going to admit that they, like, ran away. So they said they were, like, involuntarily conscripted. Oh, yeah. I mean... Makes sense. That's Fair a, enough. <laughs> it's a smarter story to tell. For sure. And not only that, but leading up to Brown's trial, there were about 589 escaped slaves in the county, and coincidentally, several fires were set at the farms of the jury members who convicted Brown. I believe every single jury member actually got their barn set on fire. wonder how that happened. <laughs> Yeah. Just uh, crazy lightning strikes. You know? Super weird. <laughs> Maybe it was. God was like, uh, you should not have done that. <laughs> you <Yes>. guys suck. <laughs> uh, in the North, you had abolitionists putting on all kinds of things for Brown. Prayers, services, marches. Uh, flags were flown at half-mast. Uh, they also raised money to support the remains of Brown's family. And, and, you know, Brown was basically seen as a martyr. In you know particularly abolitionist communities though right like yes yes definitely because there were my understanding in the the north like the more mainstream political opinion was not really pro john brown at all definitely because okay so the senate they appoint a bipartisan committee to investigate this raid and and their goal was to uncover who was funding it um which they did not succeed at but yeah you're right the north basically distanced themselves from brown um lincoln called brown insane um, and they just were like, yeah, that ain't us. Like, that's that was way too far. Yeah. Like, oh, we want to, you know, limit the expansion of slavery, but we don't agree with those tactics, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. Some other kind of legacy points, you know, again, even if it didn't have the immediate effect that Brown wanted, it was obviously a major event leading to the Civil War. It's probably one of the last big major events. Of course, we also know it from the popular Union marching song, John Brown's Body, which has been stuck in my head all fucking week. (laughs) But at least (laughs) it's a a good bop. Yeah. (laughs) Harriet Tubman, friend of Brown, at one point said that Brown did more for American blacks than Lincoln did. Damn pretty good recommendation i I mean you know lincoln doesn't get to that point lincoln kind of just tries to hold it all together um just tries to mollify the south if the civil war doesn't kick off and the civil war is you know is maybe even delayed to the other side of his presidency if john brown doesn't catalyze it you know or maybe lincoln doesn't even get elected you know if if john brown's execution doesn't polarize the nation even further I think that's that's a great point. Like, this definitely drew the line for a lot of people. I know we were talking about how, like, some people in the North were very wishy-washy on it, but, like, this really rallied the cause for both sides. You know, they, mm-hmm. they both took this and ran with it. Another cool recommendation or cool shout-out is from Malcolm X. <laughs> he had an organization called the Organization of Afro-American Unity, uh, which did not allow white people in it, uh, but he said he would make one exception saying, quote, if John Brown were still alive, we might accept him. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, pretty cool. All right, so this is the section that I want to talk about, uh, kind of the historical reaction to Brown. And this is what I think is really interesting. (laughs) 
until about 1890. So the immediate aftermath. If you remember those like newspaper interviews and all the interrogations from, you know, the governor and shit like that, historians generally considered Brown to be sane. They said, this wasn't a good plan, but like, he's not crazy. <laughs> he just is a bad, at, bad at planning. He was radical, maybe, or he was extreme, but he knew what he was doing, is what you're saying? Yeah, they, everyone said he was lucid. He was, you know, smart, even like they, they thought he was just like a guy who had different ideas than them. When you get to 1890 to around 18, 1970, that's when the narrative switches. He starts being portrayed as crazy. And 1890, I mean, that's when the Civil War is done. That's when you get a reactionary movement. Yeah, that's when, yeah, Reconstruction by that point is over for almost 20 years. That time period is called like the nadir of American race relations. Like like black people are, are just getting wrung completely. Like they, they're, they're getting squashed. They're getting lynched. Yeah. Like there's, it's a complete rollback. This is when you have the depths of the Jim Crow South and the segregation in, in, in Northern cities as well. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, along with all the lost cause historiography, along with all the stuff that's just basically saying like, Oh, the South, you know, they fought a noble fight for States rights or whatever. Like along with all that, you have John Brown, man, crazy guy. One guy, Oswald Garrison Villard, or Villard, does some particular damage, writing a biography in 1910, which basically portrayed him as a homicidal, crazy person. Um, He just, he's like, yeah, this guy was fucking nuts. Loved to kill. Is that where they started the idea of, like, that he heard the voice of God and all this? So I wasn't able to find a source for that. I mean, I saw like in his kind of basic bio stuff about how he considered himself an agent of God, but I didn't hear, see anything specifically about him like hearing voices and stuff. Mm, Could be something that I added to it that I thought sounded (laughs) cool. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I totally am open to more sources on that. I didn't spend a ton of time on that angle. I just like did a quick search on it and I couldn't find much except just saying like, yeah, he was Calvinist and he like really liked God. And like he thought he thought he was on a mission from God, but they didn't go into detail of him like hearing voices or like trying to do like magic stunts or anything. <laughs> okay, all right. So he was just Blues Brothers style on a mission from God. <laughs> Essentially, yes. Okay. Got it. Got it. <laughs> and then some slightly more recent ones. Uh Paul Finkelman, a historian specializing in slavery studies, has compared Brown to terrorists like Osama bin Laden and Timothy McVeigh. See, I think again. The difference is who are his targets, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't have a problem with the state calling revolutionary movements terrorists. I mean, you know, call us what you're going to call us. Like, it's Yeah, whatever. It's fine. They, they, they will call you. They're going to call you some shit. <laughs> yeah, they will call any group that goes up against the cops or up against the military or anything. They'll call them terror. I mean, because like he does, you know, attack uh, American troops in that. In the raid on Harper's Ferry. That that does happen, you know. Well, like, what were those American troops defending? Fucking slavery. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, that's that's the thing is they didn't see that as a crime. They didn't see that as... That was the law of the land. These liberals will say, oh, it was bad, but you should have, you know, worked through (laughs) legal means to to change it. Yeah. Um, And when you step outside of those bounds, then you cross over into terrorism and whatnot. And it's like, 
I don't know. Maybe it's a, just a definitional thing. And we're thinking of terrorism as like, oh, let's attack Completely innocent people. Evil. But they're saying terrorism is anything that, you know, actively, you know, does combat against the state. Yeah, I was wondering about that, too, because I had thought a lot of the definition of terrorism was bound up in that it's, you know, it's, it is fear-based. You're trying to strike fear into people. And I could kind of see that maybe for, like, when he goes and, like, kills a bunch of people with swords. But, like, fuck it. Like, people who are pro-slavery should be scared. <laughs> like, I don't care about scaring them. But yes, please. If I can scare yeah. you out of owning slaves, sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's also... I mean, how how terrifying would that have been to someone who was owning slaves, but down in Mississippi? Like, why would you have to worry about someone coming chopping you up with swords? You're not up in Kansas. Like, it's specifically terrorizing, like, the pro-slavery forces that were moving up there to cause trouble in Kansas. I don't know. Like, it's... it's uh, I mean, it was almost more of an assassination. Like, he had specific targets. Yeah, that's that's... And, you know, maybe it does spread, like, wider fear. But, again, only among, like, the people who were crazy enough to have gone <laughs> out to Kansas. Yeah, move their whole shit out there. Yeah, to go and, you know, try to shoot at people and shit. Like, they know what they're getting into. There was nobody going out there just to just to. <laughs> I'm just a hard-working Missouri farmer. Yeah, I just. <laughs> I mean, there were people moving. There were. But, but, like, yeah, those guys were there specifically to fight for slavery like they brought guns yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were they were combatants point is no sympathy for those guys no not at all like i'm glad they're dead yeah <laughs> oh also that historian like has lectured on behalf of the u.s state department so like i don't know <laughs> <laughs> not the best well when did so you said his uh his that sort of time period ends in like 1970 then uh, do you know do you know of any like of the historians who started the kind of revisionist work on him I don't know their names offhand, but I do know, yeah, like more recent history has like taken a more nuanced approach to it of like, yeah, this was like maybe nuts on a this was a bad plan <laughs> level. Like, I don't think he was good at planning this. But yeah, a much more sympathetic view, I would say, in, in the past like okay. couple of decades. So watch where you get your history on this guy. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I just I think it's. I'm still just so struck by those those newspaper interviews of like everyone's like, yeah, this guy's actually like really smart and like put together, like <laughs> seems very competent. <laughs> yeah, and then they, it devolves into He's this guy crazy. must have been crazy because he <laughs> shot at troops to help black people be free. Yep. All right. Any closing thoughts here? I didn't do strikes like you did, like you do, but <laughs> I already, you know, teased you my strike? strike, and I, I, I stick to it is that. There weren't enough, uh, weren't enough deaths. Like you know, he didn't succeed. <laughs> Should have done more terrorism. Causing, well, yeah, not just by his <laughs> hand too, but I mean, like you know, torching the plantations of the South. We've got altogether too many plantation weddings and stuff down here still. <laughs> yeah, those should of the, be gone. Yeah, because of the undone work of John Brown's slave rebellion, you know? <laughs> if you get married on a plantation, John Brown will fucking haunt your ass forever. <laughs> he will yeah. stab you with his ghost sword in your sleep, and you'll be like, why do I keep having weird dreams? Like, that's him. <laughs> <laughs> I always picture these as, like, broadswords. I hope that's what it was. No, like they a... were. The swords they used to murder those guys were broadswords. Okay, awesome. It wasn't like a little bayonet. Like a little rapier? No, it was a fucking broadsword. Okay. (laughs) 
that's okay. That's what I pictured. But yeah, you know, just a few plantations going up in flames. You Could know, have used more fire. A massive slave army parading through the South, liberating. That, that would have been, that's what I would have liked. The good ending. But that's not really a strike on him. That's just me wishing, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think my only strike would be the train decision was bizarre to me. Like, come on, man. You, you knew to cut the telegraph. So, like, why would you, like, let the train go send another telegram somewhere else? Yeah. Yeah. Not a good one there. Yeah. That's a tactical strike, though. Not a moral one. Yeah. It's not, he's not, he's not like fucking up or like i'm just gonna embezzle some money or i'm just gonna <laughs> you know have one slave or something i don't know like he's not <laughs> he's not erring in those ways you know yeah i mean our typical pitfalls are like what wanton violence which we talked about he doesn't really do uh what else do people typically trip up on oh like being sexist or racist i don't know about sexist but he was not racist yeah he did pretty good I would say I really admire his willingness to put his life on the line, to really literally go do something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he just packed up his shit and moved. It was like, all right, time to go take this fight to them. When everyone else, you know, when facing the great evils of their society, the best they could do was what we were doing. Don't forget to vote. Was yeah, well, not that bad. Yeah, <laughs> no, sure. I know. I've Those just seen so many ones, tweets. But, like, ugh. Yeah, it's it's bad out there now. In the face of what will be our modern fugitive, you know, fugitive abortion act or whatever oh, they come God. up with in the future, that's oh, yeah. what pe- you know the liberals will be saying. Go vote, please. Go vote. Um, but like, okay, but a lot of people back then in the abolitionist circles were doing essentially what we're doing. Was just posting. They were just uh, <laughs> newspapers, doing pamphlets, and, pamphlets. Oh yeah, you know, or going to give a speech and and stuff like that, which was fine, and it raised awareness and it pushed the population eventually to for that position to be popular enough to where Lincoln's elected in eighteen sixteen. You do kick off the Civil War, but John Brown, like he said, he wasn't. You know, he wasn't content with that. He wasn't just gonna spread the word or give speeches. He like took action more do you think that's more admirable or is that like an easy way out like is that like oh i'm just gonna do this big silly vain attempt that you know even you know frederick Douglass can see is not gonna work <laughs> and it'll make me feel good it'll you know make me a martyr it'll be brave but it doesn't actually do anything you know what i mean is that like the kind of negative interpretation of it i mean i struggle with with relating to that negative interpretation because like I don't think like I he had a plan it wasn't particularly a good plan and like maybe he should have done some more upfront prep to like I think if he had waited till he got more guys I think that would have been huge and yeah done more of that like on the ground recruiting from the nearby plantations something like that where that he had a bigger force I think that was really what fucking bit him in the ass I would have considered it more of a straight like suicide martyr mission if he had not like taken time to like set up a government and you know a documented thing of that like he wanted this to keep going he had a greater vision for it than just like i'm gonna go die here yeah that's true it was it was clearly not purposefully a failure you know it, it, he didn't he didn't, he want didn't to set fail. it up to fail yeah yeah so then i go with the positive interpretation that it was a brave stand that it was more than so many people were willing to do. 
Yeah, I mean that. I think that's my main takeaway from this is that like I so admire his conviction and the guy had a moral code and knew what did and didn't pass it and he said well I'm gonna go stop the shit that doesn't pass it how many of us can fucking say we do that for real it's you know don't beat yourself up about it too much oh yeah I'm not expecting everyone to go out there with their broadswords today (laughs) yeah but it is something to keep in mind you know when in our own ways we can take action more often than we do And we should try to, you know, we should aspire to, (laughs) we're going to fall short of John Brown's example, probably, (laughs) but we should try to come closer to it, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe you can look at some of the other actions he did, like, you know, the Underground Railroad, like, you know, not talking to cops, (laughs) finding ways to support like a larger network of things like the, the mutual defense thing and even like the fundraising aspect of like yeah i'm gonna go out there and like fucking talk up this cause like that's something yeah for sure anyway i think he's cool i like his song and i like his big beard the end (laughs) (laughs) smiley face sticker turn and report i gave myself my own sticker i didn't wait for you to give me a sticker reached up took him off my desk slapped (laughs) one on there (laughs) yeah that's fine it was good thanks good report Thank you. A plus. Hey, thank you. All right. What are we doing next week? Uh, next week, we're going to do a little theory. We're going to read Anarchy by Malatesta. Enrico Malatesta. That's a cool name. That sounds cool. Like, I don't know. I'm immediately trying to translate it to Spanish, even though I know it's not Spanish. <laughs> I'm like, it's bad. <laughs> like, it yeah. sounds like he's testy. <laughs> so he was an <laughs> Italian anarchist. Mm. Uh, this work was written in 1891 and it kind of you know talks about anarchy and we haven't done anarchist stuff in a little while yeah it's been a minute so we figured we'd uh you know branch out we're ecumenical here so great great looking forward to it you know i like my little anarchy stripe yeah you do i i dabble so you can find that on the anarchist library so if you just Google the Anarchist Library, Erica Malatesta, and, and find Anarchy there, like they have the, they have all of his works. Uh, you can also, I think, find this on Marxist.org, but I figured I would go like to the, you know, to the, to the source. main source. Yeah. yeah. But get it wherever you want it. It's free because it's old. So <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Awesome. Well, have a good day. I, how do we end this? <laughs> Uh, I'll see you next time. (laughs) Okay, bye. (laughs) Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. 
And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes. So check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.